All right, praise the Lord. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, please open up your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, 1 through 11. Joel chapter 2, 1 through 11. All right, praise the Lord. What a powerful time of worship. So happy to be worshiping the Lord together. Okay, if you're joining us in person, the passage will be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it will be on your screen at home. This is God's word, Joel chapter 2, 1 through 11. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Like there has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearances is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle, before them peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up on the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The, hem the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great, and very awesome, who can endure it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just humble ourselves and we place ourselves beneath your holy word. Father, you have the authority. We do not. You have the wisdom and all knowledge. We do not. And so, Lord God, we come humbly before your word and we ask that you would reveal it to us. Because there's great mystery and richness in your word, and we need every letter, we need every word so that we may live our lives here on earth, and so we need your help, God. Please, show yourself through this word today. We thank you, God. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for everyone joining us online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in the year 1918, there was a young soldier fighting in the trenches of World War I, and he was a committed atheist who got to see death and pain up close. I mean, it was a very traumatizing experience that he went through as a very young man. And that experience changed him and eventually it led him down a path to questioning his beliefs and then eventually accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you might have an idea of who I'm talking about. Do you know who I'm talking about? It's C.S. Lewis. But this is C.S. Lewis. And later on, he went on to become one of the most famous apologists and professors uh, uh, of Christian literature. And later, he wrote a book trying to answer the great problem of pain. But he tried to answer this question, why is there pain in the world if God is a just and good God? And this is an old problem. Many people have addressed it before. It's as old as the Bible. 
But Lewis tried to tackle it with some fresh eyes. And let me read you an excerpt from his book, The Problem of Pain. But this is what Lewis said. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as it all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. In other words, error and sin, they're kind of the same in this regard. The deeper they are within us, the less we know they're there, right? And then he said, they are masked evil. But pain, on the other hand, is unmasked. Unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasures. But pain? Pain insists upon being attended to. In other words, pain insists that we pay attention to it. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So you might have heard that before. Those are very famous words. And I believe this is what C.S. Lewis was saying. But he was saying, for the believer, no crisis in our lives is random. Amen? Nothing is an accident with no purpose in the world. But rather, for the believer, every crisis in our lives is a revelation from God. That is what Lewis is saying. And I believe he's correct. But for the believer, every time a crisis, I'm talking about major earth-shaking, life-defining crisis, whether it's in the world, whether it's in our lives, it is God speaking. God is revealing things to us. In fact, Lewis said he's shouting to us. This is megaphone. And I believe he's right because that is exactly what we've been hearing in the message of Joel. But as we've seen in the last few weeks, the book of Joel was basically God's message that he shouted to the Israelites when they were facing the worst crisis in their generation. But you know this by now, if you've been here, but a plague of locusts had come upon their land. And because of that, they were facing a great famine, even death. Men, women, and children were going to die. And in ancient times, there was no such thing as a global supply chain where other nations could come to your aid, bring food. I mean, there was no such thing like that. So Israel was facing an urgent crisis, a life-defining crisis. And when God saw that, he sent Joel, the prophet, to shout to them. Crisis and pain is God's megaphone. So contrary to what a lot of people think, oh, where's God? God's not here. That's why I'm suffering. It's the opposite. The Bible said God is actually the master of that crisis, and he is shouting. He's speaking in your pain. And so then what was God saying? Well, this was his message to the Israelites, which they did not expect. It was not a message they expected. Maybe they thought God would come and say, oh, I'm here with you and I love you so much. Right? Don't worry, I'll get rid of everything. Maybe that's what they thought. And some of that is true. God is with them. God does love them with an undying love. But that's not the message he gave. But rather, he said, this crisis right here, this is what? The day of the Lord. In fact, 
The crisis came from me. That's why it's my day. And so God was telling them that he had a sovereign and righteous purpose for this day. Even a good purpose for this crisis. In other words, the crisis came from me. This is what God was saying. And with that single phrase, the day of the Lord, all kinds of theological and eschatological significance was brought into their crisis. Okay, when I say theological, I mean truths having to do with God. When I say eschatological, I just mean truths having to do with the last days. But in that single phrase, I don't know what's wrong with this thing, sorry. I've been wrestling with it for the last few weeks. But these two words... They mean truths having to do with God in the last days. And the day of the Lord brought it right into the crisis. Okay, this is what God was talking about. So their crisis was not just a hard time revealing their sins, calling them to come back to God. Yes, their crisis was doing all of that, but it was so much more. It was the day of the Lord. It was the day of the Lord. But what is that? What is that? And why does it matter? Well, when you look at the book of Joel, in just three short chapters, and especially starting in chapter 2, Joel had a lot to say about it. He first mentioned the day of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 15. And then he tackles it head-on, starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In fact, our passage is book-ended by the day of the Lord. You know a bookend, you know, like on the shelf in your room? It covers one end and then the other end. Well, Joel said the day of the Lord in verse 1, and then he said it again in verse 11, at the very end of our passage. And what did Joel say about the day of the Lord? Well, whatever he said, the rest of the Bible agrees with it. And Joel, he actually expands on this theme of the day of the Lord. Because all throughout the Bible, there is a lot written on the day of the Lord. The Bible has a lot to say about it. So, for example, Isaiah talked about it. He's the first one who mentioned it in your Bible, in Isaiah 2.12. And then Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, they all talked about it. And then when you move into the New Testament, it continues. But Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. And then most of all, Jesus talked about it. So do you get the point? This is not a small topic. This is not just some little side issue tucked away in the Bible. This is shot through the entire Bible. It is a massive theme. It covers the Bible from almost beginning to end. And there is no way we can wrap our arms around it in one day. Not even in two days. And we're going to look at this for two days. And we can't even pretend to go into it in depth. But what I want to do today is to just kind of paint just kind of a picture. A surface level picture of what the Bible is talking about. And first to understand how important this is, how much the Bible puts emphasis on this topic. And you know what? Even in my own limited study of the day of the Lord, as I've looked into it over the years, I've come to learn that no Christian can live truly in a faithful, persevering, God-honoring way unless you understand the day of the Lord. Okay, I mean that. Unless you have some level of understanding of the day of the Lord, you cannot live faithfully, perseveringly, in a God-glorifying way in your life. This is why it's so important. The day of the Lord has to shape your perspective on your life 
and on human history and what's going on in the world. You must understand this. So today I want to scratch the surface on this great topic, and I want to look at two different things. We'll look at the first thing today and the second thing next week. But we're going to look at understanding the day of the Lord and then living in view of the day of the Lord. After you understand it, then you're going to have to know how to live in view of it. So these are the two things I want to look at. So first, understanding the day of the Lord, or at least beginning to understand it in a limited way. But what is the day of the Lord? Why does the Bible talk about it again and again and again and again? Well, the Bible calls this thing a day. But the word day is not really about a 24-hour time period. So don't just imagine, oh yeah, there's this one day coming, this 24-hour period. But that's not what day refers to. But it's referring more probably to an event or a cluster of events. And these events surround the end of this present age. And at its most basic level, the day of the Lord are the events that will bring an end to this present age. So what am I talking about? Everything we know about this world, everything you see around you, everything you know about life, your own life, the things that just go on day to day, week to week, month to month, year after year, the, the life that we know, the existence we know here on earth, one day, and again, it's not a 24-hour day, but an event or a cluster of events, one day, God will bring an end to all of it. It's going to come to an end. This is what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And notice, it's the day of the Lord. It's not the day of Satan, not the day of the Antichrist. It's the day of the Lord. It's God's day. Why? Because who's bringing all of it to an end? God. God's completely going to bring it to an end. And what will God do when he brings his present age to an end? Well, the Bible is clear because it talks about it so much. He will bring great terror and judgment upon the unrighteous, all who are in rebellion to him. Okay, this is what God will do. And he will bring great salvation and the renewal of all things for the righteous, for people who belong to him. Okay, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is what God will do on that day. So notice how the day of the Lord is different things to different people. They're actually the exact opposite things to different people. But here's what everyone will share in common on the day of the Lord. For everyone, the final day of the Lord will come as a sudden cataclysmic crisis upon the world. Okay, I'll say that again. Yes, it's going to be different things to different people. But this is the thing that's going to be the same for everyone. It's going to be sudden It'll be cataclysmic, meaning it's not going to be the slow, progressive thing. It's just going to happen in a very short amount of time, and it's going to come through crisis, major crisis upon the world. And again, this is not me saying this. This is not some obscure teaching, but the Bible repeats it again and again and again and again in the Old Testament, the New Testament, multiple different authors. The Bible can't stop talking about it. It is the day of the Lord. And if you miss this, you don't even know the first thing about the Christian life, really, and the perspective you need to have. And this final day is so big, it is so important, God repeatedly gives a preview of it. Why? To clarify and to remind. Okay, this day is coming, don't forget, don't forget. This day is coming, my people, don't forget. This day is coming, and by the way, let me clarify. This is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to look like. Do not forget, it is coming. 
That final day is coming. And so he continuously does this. He reminds us. He clarifies. How? By giving you, giving all of us preview days of the Lord. Okay, what do I mean by that? Crises? The different things that happen in our lives? And so, you know, I've been kind of saying this throughout this series, but every time there's a crisis, I'm talking about major crisis in your life, you go, why, God, what are you doing, why? Well, I will tell you very directly one of the reasons why is God's trying to wake you up and give you a preview of what's to come. Wake up, right? You're just living like a zombie. Day in and day out, class, work, friends, hanging out, kids, bills, making money. You're a zombie, and God's saying, wake up! You need to understand where everything is headed. So here's a preview. Here's a crisis in your life. Wake up. And there's enough overlap between the crises in our lives right here and right now and the great crisis coming that day. There's enough overlap where we can learn things, right? And we're reminded of what's to come. And so when you look at the book of Joel, Joel calls the crisis in his day the locust plague. He calls that the day of the Lord. Now, obviously, that wasn't the final day of the Lord because the earth kept going, right? I mean, we've been here for 2,000 years. So that wasn't the final day of the Lord. Then why did he call it that? Because that was a preview. It was a preview final day. In other words, that crisis in Joel's day had a lot of similar characteristics to the final day. And God brought it. Joel was very clear. God brought this. This is the day of the Lord, okay, this plague and this famine here. And God brought it to clarify and to remind all of you, God's people, of what's coming. So wake up, okay? Don't be a zombie. Don't just live your life day in and day out like everything's going to keep going. The Bible repeatedly is shouting to us, like C.S. Lewis said, that's not true. Your life in this world will not just be the same. Endlessly, day in and day out, same old, same old. That is not the way existence will be. All of it will come to an end. You know, when I thought about an example, I couldn't think of anything better than quizzes and midterms in school. Almost all of us here have been to school, if not everyone. And so you know, the moment you start a class, what happens? You hear about the final exam. Okay, on this day, there's a final exam. And leading up to the final exam, you look at your schedule, and what do you see? A bunch of midterms and quizzes, right? And these quizzes and midterms, they serve a purpose. There's a reason why you have them. Okay, what's the purpose? To give you pain? Maybe. <laughs> but what's the purpose? It's to clarify how you're doing in the class. Okay, where are you in the class? That's one purpose. You're not going to even know where you are in the class, how you're doing, unless you take a midterm or get quizzed on the stuff you're learning. So they're there to clarify, but there's another purpose. To remind you. Remind you of what? There's a final coming. Right? Don't be a zombie. Don't just come to class and zone out and fall asleep. There's a final coming. And so you take a midterm, dang it, 50%? <laughs> dang it. Oh, there's a final coming. I better get ready for that final, right? That's immediately what happens. You should be reminded of that. So yeah, wow, I just took my second midterm. I got an 85% on it. That's not too bad, but oh, I have a final coming, Right? So it kind of clarifies where you're at in the class and reminds you of what's coming up ahead. And so this is exactly what crises does in our lives. This is what they do. But God gives them. He brings them. He allows them. I like the word appoint. He appoints them into our lives as a preview of the final day that's coming. 
He does it to clarify and to remind. And so this is why in the Bible, these preview crises are also called the day of the Lord. This is why Joel looked at the locust plague and said, that's the day of the Lord. When you look at all the other prophets like Amos, Obadiah, Malachi, many others, they all say, that thing happening, this army coming, this is the day of the Lord. Okay, this is why the Bible says that. So they are like little days of the Lord pointing to the much greater day of the Lord. So when crisis hits our lives, God is saying, don't lose sight of the final day, my people. It's coming. So be prepared. Okay, come back to me. Okay, this is what God is doing. So at his most basic understanding, this is the final day of the Lord. And in the little book of Joel, we see all the characteristics of the day of the Lord. Okay, we, we see this. In just short, three short chapters, Joel really lays out all these things that I just mentioned about the day of the Lord. And he does it in a very skillful and sophisticated way. He weaves all these themes on the day of the Lord, all these truths on the day of the Lord into a single message. He does it very skillfully. And so he goes from the present day of the Lord. I'm talking about the locust plague in his day. So he starts with that in chapter 1. And then he's talking about that, right? He's giving vivid detail, telling people to repent, come back to God. This is the day of the Lord. And then suddenly in chapter 2, he switches. If you're, not a pay, if you're not paying attention, you don't even notice it at first. But he suddenly switches, and now we're in something else. But he seems to be talking about this future day of the Lord while still overlapping some of the same imagery from the previous day of the Lord. So he's still using some of that imagery of the locusts, but he's clearly moving into something else now. And I admit, a lot of this could be confusing. But I remember one time, a professor in my seminary, he kind of gave a good example of how some of these prophetic writings work. But he said, have you ever been outside and you look at a mountain range? And he says, you notice how the mountain ranges, it's not just one mountain, right? But there's many. But there's one in front, there's another one behind, and another one behind. And he said, these prophets, and by the way, prophets, another word for them in the Old Testament is seer. And the reason why is because they see things. They see things that other people can't see. What are they seeing? What God is showing them. So they are seers, they are prophets. And so they're seeing vision. A vision is simply something that they're seeing while they're awake. A dream is something that they're seeing from God when they're asleep. But they're seeing things, right? And what they're seeing is revelation from God, and they're kind of like mountain ranges. So they're seeing the mountain right in front, and they're talking about it, they're writing it, and you're like, okay, okay, this is happening in their day. And then suddenly, whoosh. you know, the other day we were at my parents' house, and they live right behind a mountain, and we were in the backyard. And my daughter uh, took my dad's binoculars, and she was looking at it going, ooh, cool, right? And then she was switching it from back, you know, f you know close to far, close to far. And she was like, dad, look at this. And she was doing that for me. But it's kind of like that. You take a pair of binoculars and you go, whoop, close, whoop, far, whoop, close. And that's the way these prophets were writing. It's very confusing at times, but that's what they're doing. The mountain range up front, locust plague. Within a few verses, whoop, the mountain range further away. Whoop, back to the locust again. Whoop, back to the, you know, it's just like, whoa, what is going on? But clearly, I mean, it's done very skillfully. It's not just random. It's all inspired by the Spirit of God. But this is what the prophets are seeing. This is what Joel is seeing. And so this is exactly what's happening in chapter 2, verse 1. But without any notice, without any explanation, suddenly he goes, whoosh, and now he's looking at a mountain range further behind. And he says, 
Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And so here the reader might go, oh, um, I think I know what he's talking about. He just said the day of the Lord. He mentioned that before, right? Chapter 1, verse 15. And yes, he said that earlier. He said, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So yes, Joel mentioned it in chapter 1. So you might be thinking, oh yeah, uh, he mentioned this before. I think I know what he's talking about. The locust, right? He referred to the locust as the day of the Lord. So the reader might assume that, that he's talking about the same thing in chapter 2 as he did in chapter 1. And in fact, some Bible scholars agree. That's how they interpret it. Some Bible scholars who wrote commentaries, they say, yeah, chapter 2 is just a repetition of chapter 1. That's all Joel is doing. He's just kind of making it more intense, more urgent, but it's the same thing. So they say Joel is circling back and making the locusts sound more urgent, more devastating. But that's all he's doing. And so Joel launches into talking about this second plague of locusts using even more vivid imagery. And so that's one interpretation. And I admit, I mean, it's kind of hard to know, right? Is that right? I'm not sure. And Bible scholars who are far more knowledgeable than any of us, they kind of disagree on this, right? Is that, is that really what Joel is doing? Well, this is what other Bible scholars say. They say, well, no, not so fast. Because when you read chapter 2 more carefully, there are clues that Joel gives. See, this is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible, and this is why today is going to be a little bit more teaching. I'm going to take a little bit more time explaining this. But remember, every word in Scripture is vital for you to understand. You've got to know your Bible. You have to know what God is saying to you, especially when crisis hits your life. So what is going on here? Well, other Bible scholars, they say, no, Joel is not just repeating what he said in chapter 1, but this is something different. This is new. There are clues. So what, what clues? Well, for example, the Hebrew grammar starting in chapter 2 switches. But the grammar is now talking more about future things, future events, not things in the present or things that already happened, but future. The grammar switches. Starting in chapter 2, Joel's description of the day of the Lord also changes. It becomes more urgent, more intense. Okay, why, why would he feel the need to repeat everything he already said, but do it more urgently. Why would he do that when he already kind of made his point in chapter one? But he switches. It becomes more urgent, more intense. Also, his description of the army is very strange, but he calls them northerners. And that doesn't fit where the locusts came from. Because historians know when the locusts came into the land of Israel, and it happened several times, they always came from the south. So to call them northerners is very strange. And even if this was a one-off, just kind of coincidence, by, by some random reason they came from the north, I mean, why would you call them northerners? Right? It, it just doesn't make sense. And what Joel says about the army does, what the army does and how they behave, it doesn't sound like locusts at all. Again, we're not going to go into each verse, but if you go back and read it, it just sounds very strange. For example, they climb walls. I mean, I've never watched locusts for very long. I don't particularly like locusts, but I don't think they climb over walls, do they? I mean, they fly. He talked about this army staying in rings, and they don't jostle. In other words, they don't touch each other. And I know that's not true. Locusts, they climb all over each other, right? So, so what is this talking about? So we can go into this in a lot more depth, but for the sake of time, 
All I'm saying is that this just doesn't match up. Right? He's talking clearly about something different. So based on these clues, many good Bible scholars believe that Joel is talking about an entirely different day of the Lord. This is a totally different crisis in the future. He's talking about a much greater day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord, or I'm sorry, the current day of the Lord is merely a preview of this day of the Lord, the much greater one. And so here's Joel. Okay, he sees both mountain ranges. He sees the one close up, the one far away, and he's kind of you know, going back and forth. And skillfully, he's using imagery. He's overlapping these images, right? He's taking some of this imagery of the locusts, and he's weaving it into now this greater crisis that's happening, this northern army. For example, he says they look like horses, but then we know earlier locusts also have uh, the appearance of horses. And then he quickly goes way beyond that, and he describes this actual human army and the things that they're doing. So do you see how complicated this gets? But this is Joel. And then when you really look at now what the Bible on a whole says about the day of the Lord, then now it makes sense. It makes sense. Because everything Joel described here in chapter 2, this northern army, it comes up again and again and again in the rest of the Bible. For example, Jeremiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. And we're not going to look at any of that for the sake of time. But here's the point. Joel was looking way into the future, and he was seeing, as he was seeing the crisis in front of him, the locusts, the day of the Lord right here, he was looking way past that, and he saw a very, very distant future day of the Lord. And what he saw, and I believe this is going to be a literal army, but he saw a last day's army, an eschatological army. I'm talking about a literal army that is going to march into Jerusalem and capture that city and destroy that city. And this is what Joel saw. So I believe that this is an actual army that Joel saw thousands of years ago, but he saw, and this army will come from the north Some people say, well, it might be Russia, because when you look at the map, the world map, directly north of Israel is Russia, but that's too far north, right? Closer than that is Turkey. So some people say, no, I think it's Turkey, because Turkey is a very hostile nation to Israel that's directly north. Either way, there is an army that will be coming from the north and will march into Jerusalem, and this will be happening in the last days. And so some people, they try to spiritualize this away and they go, oh yeah, this isn't any of that. This is just talking about locusts or it's just something spiritual. But the Bible has way too much to say about this for it to be just spiritual. I believe it's literal. The Bible is talking about literal end time events. And so this is what Joel saw. And as he was describing this, many characteristics of the day of the Lord started coming out. He started describing this day of the Lord in the distant future. And in that description, there are characteristics that started coming out. And this is what I want to look at today. So is that clear so far? I know it's kind of like, whoa, it's way out there, but hopefully it makes sense. So he's looking at different mountain ranges. And chapter 2, I believe, is a different day of the Lord than chapter 1. But they're both very important. Okay, any crisis that's happening here and now is a preview of that distant day of the Lord that's going to come. There is a great day of tribulation coming. And as Joel saw that, began to describe it, there are characteristics that began to come up concerning the day of the Lord. So what characteristics? Well, there are three I want to look at. So first, Joel said the day of the Lord is a day of sudden destruction, sudden destruction. So look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 2. 
but it's a day of sudden destruction. Joel said, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. When the ancient Israelites heard that, almost everybody knew what this meant. But in ancient Israel, the trumpet sound was a call for what? Battle. It was a clear call to gather for battle. It was an alarm. It was a warning that there was danger coming. Danger is imminent. And so here in Joel 2, the danger was coming, and Joel said, sound the alarm. But what was unusual is this danger was from God. It was from God. So in that opening verse, we get this from a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. In the Old Testament, that's a very common reference to God's presence, his presence in judgment. The Old Testament commonly uses this image of darkness and clouds and gloom. Okay, this is God. This is God bringing this danger. So the day of destruction has suddenly come, almost without warning. And so Joel said, blow the trumpet. You must blow the trumpet. Okay, it is kind of like a, a siren. Okay, one person said it would be the exact same thing as an air raid siren today. You know, the closest experience I had of that was when I used to live in Nebraska, there were a lot of tornadoes. And so I remember in school, we would have these drills where the siren would suddenly go off and then we would have to hide under our desks. I don't know what that would do in a tornado, right? I kind of thought that even as a little kid, I'm like, what is this going to do if a tornado comes in, into the school, right? But we had to go under our desk. But there would be a siren. So that's the closest I can think of of hearing that kind of a siren. And I remember one time we were playing outdoors and we were riding our bikes around the neighborhood and there were these dark clouds and clouds before a tornado, they look very strange. They have this unusual shape, kind of like these bowls, right, hanging from the sky. And then suddenly the, the siren went, it was freaking us out, right? We're like, ah, go under a desk, right? We have to like find a desk and go under. It's like, go, go hide. But it just came out of nowhere. And so this is exactly what Joel is talking about. Blow the trumpet. Blow the siren. There's imminent danger, and this danger is coming from the presence of God. So this is the picture here. What are we looking at? This is sudden destruction, right? Sudden destruction. But it wasn't sudden and unexpected for everyone. It was only sudden and unexpected for a certain group of people, those in rebellion to God. And so elsewhere, as you get to look at more and more passage on the, on the day of the Lord, this becomes clearer. But Paul fleshes this out more in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. But if you look there, he said, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it's going to be unexpected. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So Paul makes the same point. It's sudden, right? It's going to come when people don't expect it, but then he fleshes this out. And he says it's going to be sudden for a certain group of people, but not for others. So listen to what he says. The very next verses. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So do you see that? This day is going to come suddenly when people do not expect it. I mean, you're literally going to be going to school on your way to work, eating lunch with a friend, on your laptop, surfing the internet at Starbucks. The day comes. 
But Paul says, but for a certain group, it will not be a surprise. These are the people who are living in the light. These are the people who belong to the Lord or walking with the Lord. But anybody else who is not, they will be caught completely unaware. And the reason why is because they will be in sin and sin blinds. He sin blinds to the realities of God. It blinds them to the truth of God and scripture. So they don't see God, right? They don't see God's holiness. They don't see their own sin. They don't see the judgment that is coming upon their sin. They don't see any of that. And so they're lulled into a false sense of security. Again, Paul says, they will say, peace, security. They're not going to realize. And so sin has blinded them. They are lulled into a false peace. And this is why those in darkness are going to be woken up suddenly. It's going to be a rude awakening. But people in the light, they're already awake. Right? They are people of the day. They are walking with the Lord. And they know. They might not know the exact hour, but they know. This is where it's all headed. So that's the first characteristic we see. It is a sudden destruction. But Joel mentioned something else. It is an unstoppable judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of unstoppable judgment. Look at verses 2 through 9. Okay, we read this earlier. We're not going to read it again. But Joel goes into vivid detail about this army from the north. And one thing that I believe Joel is saying about this army is that this army was relentless. Okay, nothing could stop them from advancing. So they were kind of like the locusts, but they were far more than the locusts, right? He uses imagery that overlaps with the locusts, but this is more than that. So they ran like, they will run like horses. They will climb the walls. They will rush through flying arrows. They will climb through even the windows and take over the city. And so as Joel said this, I believe he was giving a graphic representation of what? God's judgment. So is this an actual army that's going to come one day in the last days? Yes, I believe that. It's a northern army that's going to physically come, actually come. But they also represent something else, God's judgment. And God's judgment is going to come. It's going to come through the city of Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem. It's going to come upon the world, and it's going to be unstoppable. See, that's the picture here. They are unstoppable. Joel's basically saying, who can stop this army? In other words, who can stop this judgment? So as the army climbs over the walls and pours into Jerusalem, this is a graphic picture of God's judgment. This is what the seer saw. This is what Joel saw. Maybe in a vision, maybe in a dream, but this was a revelation of God. So this is the day of the Lord. It is a day of unstoppable judgment. Again, elsewhere in the Bible, it says the same thing. Paul fleshes this out again. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3, Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As, and please pay attention, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So right there at the end, that's a little bit strange because Paul talked about sudden judgment coming, sudden destruction, and then he talks about labor pains. But then if if you've ever seen a pregnant woman, if you've ever been pregnant yourself, you know it's not sudden in the sense that you're not expecting it, right? I mean, you had nine months to think about this, right? You have a suitcase packed. We have some pregnant women in our church. I think they're ready. I think they're expecting it's going to happen when the due date comes. So what is Paul talking about? Paul's Paul's not talking about suddenness when he suddenly mentions pregnant women going into labor. What is he talking about? 
he's talking about is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. So this sudden destruction comes when the day of the Lord comes. And once it's here, you can't stop it. Isn't that the point of labor pains? I remember when my wife was pregnant with all three of my kids. She has much better memory of it than I do because she went through it. But I remember the moment the labor pains kicked in, the contraction started, my wife didn't look at her Google calendar. She looks at that every day. And she didn't go, hmm, I have two appointments today in the afternoon. I think I'm going to reschedule my labor pains to tomorrow. Right? She didn't say that. Right? I mean, obviously. Because this here is unstoppable. Everything else cleared out. Right, Roy, I don't care what you're doing. You clear out your schedule. We're going to the hospital. It is unstoppable. It is here. And that is the point. Once God's day is here, the final day of his judgment, it is now upon the world. It is sudden. It is also unstoppable. There is no stopping it. It will begin to burn through the city, burn through the world. This is Joel's message. And every crisis that we encounter in our lives, God's saying, don't forget. Why does God say that? Why does he give us continual reminders, midterms and quizzes, reminding us of the final? Because he loves us. He's saying, wake up. Don't be a zombie. Don't forget. This is my day. It will come, and it will come like this. And so it's repeated again and again and again and again. But there's something else. But Joel also said the day of the Lord is a day of cosmic signs. A day of cosmic signs. Look at Joel 2, 10 through 11. He says, again, he's seen this, right, in the future. He saw the locust plague, and then now he's seen something else behind that in the future. And now he says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. In other words, they stop shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Wow, notice how Joel called that northern army, that wicked army, God's army. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin or cause anybody to sin, but he will use sinful human beings. So he's using this sinful army. It's his army. His voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So notice there are going to be cosmic signs. This is one of the best evidences that this is not the locust anymore, right? Locusts do not cause the earth to shake, the moon to go dark. I mean, the locusts don't do that. These are cosmic signs. And if you know your Bible, what does this sound like? It sounds like what Jesus said, right? Jesus says something similar. Matthew 24, 29 through 30. Except Jesus expands on it. See, the Bible keeps doing that. It mentions the same thing, overlaps and expands. Overlaps, expands. The Bible is so thorough. But Jesus said the same thing, except he connected it to his second coming. He said in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? The last days. The day of God. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. In other words, they are not going to shine anymore. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus said the same thing. He said, with the day of the Lord, the great day, the final day, there will be cosmic signs. And so what does this mean, right? What does this have to do with us? 
Well, I believe these cosmic signs are pointing to a shaking and an undoing of creation. Okay, again, we live our lives, most of us are zombies, we're just like, same day, same year, same, everything's the same, nothing changes, right? Life is always the same, nothing changes, that's how we feel. And yet the Bible says that is absolutely not true. One day, everything we see will come to an end, and it's going to come with shaking. And there's going to be an undoing of creation. How do we know that? Look at these cosmic signs. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Jesus himself said there will be a shaking of the heavens. And so we saw a reference to this already in verse 3 in Joel 2. We can miss it. It's very you know, easy to miss. But Joel said, as the northern army marches through the promised land, what's going to happen? The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and then behind them is like what? A scorched wilderness. So what is that a picture of? That's a picture of undoing creation itself. The Garden of Eden is where God first created man and woman. He first created all the animals. I mean, that was his beautiful creation. And this army in this kind of symbolic way is undoing all of that. Creation is being undone. And does the Bible repeat that elsewhere? Yeah, the Bible always repeats itself. Peter says something similar. 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. There's an undoing of creation that's gonna come on the great day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord will mark the end of life in this world as we know it. It's gonna happen through great shaking, a great undoing of creation itself. The Bible repeatedly warns us about this. And so there's always this kind of shaking, this undoing that God will bring, okay, even in our lives. And that's a preview of the great shaking, the great undoing. You know, I see that in Isaiah's life, you know, the story of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He was a prophet, a different prophet. He went into the temple to worship, and suddenly he saw God high and lifted up. And then what happened when he saw God high and lifted up on the throne? He says he literally became what? Undone, Right? Well, before that, it says the glory of the Lord filled the temple and it shook the temple and then it says he became undone. See, same thing. So there's a great shaking and undoing at the end of the age and God will remind us. There are quizzes and midterms. God's saying, I'm gonna bring crisis to shake and undo even here out of love to remind us. And so this happened to Isaiah and it's so interesting that it was the very area that he was good in the righteousness that he had. That was the very area that God undid. It was the very area that he used to serve God. It was his mouth, right? God God undid his mouth and Isaiah said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. In other words, I have a dirty mouth. And he was a prophet. And so God shook him and he undid that area. This is what God does through crisis. So have you ever felt that way? Right? Have you ever faced something in your life in the very area you thought you were serving God with, the area that you took pride in, you're good in this area, and God goes, and you feel undone in that area? Yeah, I have. You pastoring this church for the last, like, I don't know, 12, 13 years. There were some things that we went through, and it was in the very area of me preaching the word and pastoring this church, I just felt undone. God, I'm a sinner, especially in this ministry, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in the way I'm leading this church. God will undo us. And so because God loves us, he will do this fundamental shaking of who we are. And God will do that because unless he shakes us, unless he begins to undo us, right? 
on that final day that'll happen, but also leading up to it. There are previews. Unless God does that, we don't even know who we are. Again, because sin blinds us. We don't see ourselves. We don't see our sin. We don't see God. We don't see his holiness. We don't see his judgment. We see nothing. We hear nothing. We do nothing for God. So many of us. And so God shakes. He reveals who we are. You know, a very simple analogy is when an earthquake hits a building, what happens? The foundations get exposed. I remember a good friend of mine uh, who used to actually come to this church, but he went to Haiti for missions, and he said, man, Roy, when I was there in Haiti, the moment we landed, it was unreal. It looked like a war zone, but there was no war there. It was just a massive earthquake. Shook the entire nation. You guys might have known about it. You probably heard about it. But when that earthquake hit that nation, buildings were stripped bare, right? Things were undone. And my friend said, yeah, you could just walk past a building. You saw the guts of the building. Some buildings, you even saw the foundation. So this is exactly what God does. He will shake in in order to undo us. He stripped all these things down and it exposes the foundation itself. And so, given all of this, here's the natural question you should ask. Is it worth investing all of my life in the things of this world? Is it worth even investing most of my life in the things of this world? Knowing what you know now, that this day is coming, this great day, and leading up to it, there are going to be many preview days reminding you, clarifying what's coming. Is it worth it? You know, one of the biggest companies to fall in the great financial crisis, 2008, we actually started the church right around that time. It was like everything was crashing. It's like, hey, let's start a church. God was in control. But during that great financial crisis, one of the biggest companies to fall was Lehman Brothers. But they were the fourth largest investment bank in the U.S., and in one day, they collapsed. They went completely bankrupt. They collapsed. I mean, the, the whole sky was falling, right? Everybody thought the economy was done for. It was over. And if you knew what was going to happen to Lehman Brothers back in 2007, just a year before, if you knew that in one day they were going to collapse and be gone, how much of your life savings would you have invested in that bank? Okay, that's the question. Would you have invested all of your money, all of your life savings? What about most of your life savings? What about half? Knowing in one year this bank is going to collapse and be gone. How, how much would you have invested into that bank? And if the answer is clear to you in that question, then what about the question about your life? The Bible repeatedly says this world is like a Lehman Brothers. It is literally a Lehman Brothers, brothers and sisters. And so God is saying repeatedly in scripture, how much of your life are you going to invest in this? Because it's all going to be shaken and it's all going to be undone. And by the way, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be unstoppable. You think you're going to reverse it? Oh, no, 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 no. Not today. Right? I have things to do. I'm going to go meet some friends. I got to go get married. It talks about that in the days of Noah. People were getting married. They had a lot of things to do. It's going to be unstoppable. And so this is the day of the Lord. This is the great day of the Lord. So we only looked at one half of it, but the day of the Lord also is a day of great salvation and renewal. But Joel doesn't mention that here in our passage. He mentions it later, so we'll talk about it later. I'm not going to mention it here. 
But this is the basic understanding of the day of the Lord. It is a day when God will bring this present age to a sudden and dramatic end. I don't know why God's doing it that way. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I first became a Christian, I didn't know that. (laughs) Maybe I didn't, I don't know. I didn't read my Bible enough. But as you read scripture, it just becomes crystal clear. God repeatedly, in fact, it is his megaphone, right? In times of greatest crisis and trial in your life, God is shouting this, right? He's saying, wake up and hear my word again in a fresh new way. It is all coming to an end. And you know what? I want to close with this. And I'm not one to like take the newspaper and try to match it with the Bible. I actually almost never do that. But when I look at the world today, I don't think it's a stretch to say that COVID and the millions of COVID-related deaths and then the enormous instability that COVID brought into the world, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is a preview, day of the Lord. This is a little day of the Lord, waking us up, reminding us of that final day. I don't think it's a stretch to say that. Right now, we are living in times that are more unstable than 40, 50 years. People say that. In more than half a century, we are living in the most unstable times. Economic, political, social instability. You know, this past week, I even saw in the news that hundreds of thousands of people are protesting and marching in the streets of Europe. Do you know that? What's going on in Europe? Why are they doing that? Well, they're crying out and protesting the government for the same things that we're experiencing, except they're much further ahead. But they said the cost of living is so high, it's at the breaking point. We can't live anymore. People are talking about like not even being able to buy bread. Forget about gas for your car. They are facing an urgent energy crisis, maybe a generational crisis. People are saying this is the most massive energy crisis Europe has seen in a long time. On top of all that, there is a war happening right next door to them on their doorstep in Ukraine. Okay, this is just Europe, but there is incredible instability all throughout the world. And then, of course, there are things happening in our personal lives as well. Okay, there are crises I know that we're facing. And so what is the word of the Lord in the midst of all of that? God is saying, this is a reminder, right? This is a clarification of the greater day that is to come. And the reason why I'm reminding you, and I remind you, and I remind you, is because I love you. Okay, I want you to be prepared. And so in light of that, how should we live? Well, we're going to look at that next week. Amen? Let's bow. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your grace and your reminder. Your reminder again and again and again. And Lord God, I don't know when you're going to come. There are certain signs that your word mentions that we can have a sense. We can have an idea. But it could be another 200 years before you come. I don't know. Or it could be just 20 years. Or long before even you come, Lord, we can go to you. Lord, we don't know when we're going to die. We all believe we have decades left in our lives, but that's not true. We know. We know that people can die suddenly, unexpectedly, at a young age. And I pray that that would not happen to anyone here. That is not the message at all. Some sort of a doom and gloom prophecy. Not at all, God. I pray for a long life, fruitful life, but we just don't know the future. We just don't know. And so, Lord God, help us to be the people of the day and to live like people of the day. 
please, Lord God, help us. We worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's come before the Lord. We do this every Sunday, but let's respond to God's word. The book of Joel is such an amazing book. You know, when you read through the Bible, you begin to notice a pattern. And this is something worth remembering. But you begin to notice that over and over and over again, God tells us what you see around you isn't the reality. Okay, things will not keep going, same old, same old. Nothing ever changes. But God consistently tells us in Scripture, no, it's going to come to an end. You need to be awake. You need to be alert. It's going to come to an end. But then when you read through Scripture, you notice something else. The enemy. The enemy is always telling us what? Relax. Be at peace. Everything is the same, right? Nothing's changed. Every day you wake up, the sun comes up. Every night the sun goes down, right? Every day you have the same class, you have the same job at work. I mean, it's just everything's the same, so just chill out. You can follow God tomorrow. You can get serious after this season of busyness. I mean, that is a consistent pattern. So knowing that now, the next time you feel like, oh, I mean, I don't know what Roy's talking about. I don't know why the Promise Church is so, like, crazy about this day of the Lord. Everything is the same. Take it easy. You know who that is. You know who that is. I'm telling you. That is consistently the voice of the enemy. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. Peace, security. Paul, Joel. Right? It's always the same message. And so who are you going to listen to? So let's just come before the Lord right now. Who are you going to listen to? Thank you, Father God. We just humble ourselves and Lord God we, we need to make the most of our time and opportunity and live lives that are sober and awake and alert Father thank you Jesus thank you Father oh we give you all the glory Jesus thank you Father